2: It's time to speak up. It's time to speak out. Welcome to We Have a Voice voice. Community discussions about Huntington's disease and juvenile Huntington's disease.
3: Show host, James Valvano.
1: You are loved.
3: Hello everyone, this is James Valvano, your host here on We Have a Voice Radio. We are broadcasting across Spreaker, Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many other networks. Today I have two special guests joining us Dr. Herwig Lang from the George Huntington Institute in Germany, and Dr. Lang is also our chief medical advisor for We Have a Face. We also have Dr. Thomas Bird with us today, a very special guest. Dr. Bird has decades of experience working with individuals with Huntington's disease and families. Dr. Bird was also the director of the University of Washington's Huntington's Disease Center of Excellence and remains there as an advisor. Dr. Bird has over 35 years of experience working at the University of Washington, Neurology and Medical Genetics faculties. Dr. Bird has pursued his interest in hereditary diseases of the nervous system. I would like to thank both of you for joining me today. How are you, Dr. Lang? and welcome to the show.
4: Fine. We had a nice day, and uh, we're all set to go on the radio
1: show.
3: Wonderful. And Dr. Bird, thank you so much for joining us today, and how are you? I'm
1: fine. It's my pleasure uh, to join you.
3: Thank you. Well, I want to let the listeners know what topics that we will be discussing today. What is a center of excellence? How does a facility become a center of excellence? Should doctors diagnose Huntington's patients earlier so that a treatment plan can be put in place? And how can environmental factors help Huntington's patients regarding the onset of symptoms? And lastly, I've been in touch with Louise Vetter, CEO and president of the Huntington's Disease Society of America, obviously the HDSA, regarding harnessing telemedicine for centers of excellence to see their patients during COVID-19. So there is great news, and I will discuss more of that later in the show. So let's begin. Dr. Bird, once again, thanks for joining us today. And I'd like you to begin today by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and how you came to work with patients and families with Huntington's disease.
1: Uh, thanks for that introduction. I'm happy to do that. It's uh, a topic that is near and dear to my heart, uh, as it is, I'm sure, to all your, all your listeners. So I, I am a, a neurologist. And I'm a neurologist who has had special training in uh, a a subspecialty of medicine called medical genetics. Uh, And what happened to me, just to give you a little background, is that when I was training to become a neurologist, it was at the University of Washington in Seattle. And I saw a couple of patients during that training who had Huntington's disease. And they were the first patients I'd ever seen with that diagnosis. Uh, And I found them quite interesting and different from any of the other neurological cases that I was seeing. Uh, And that was just a transient exposure to Huntington's disease, but I didn't forget it. Uh, And I completed my three years of neurology residency at, at the University of Washington Uh, And I had come across a very important clinic at our university called the Medical Genetics Clinic, run by a world-famous medical geneticist named Dr. Arno Mm. Moltolski. And I was fascinated by genetic diseases of the nervous system as I rotated through that clinic. So when I finished my residency, I applied to become a fellow in Medical Genetics with uh, Dr. Moltowski and his group Uh, I was accepted and I did that so I spent two years specifically seeing and studying genetic diseases of the nervous system it happened so that was in the 1970s and in the 1970s people didn't think very much about adults with hereditary diseases uh, genetics was focused on pediatrics uh, and severe usually autosomal recessive uh, diseases of childhood so not much thought was given to adults with genetic brain diseases but I found it incredibly uh, fascinating and as I was doing my rotation in medical genetics a family came to the clinic and it turned out to be the family of the man I had seen as a resident with Huntington's disease. And it was his son that was coming to clinic because in the subsequent years, he had developed symptoms of the disease and we made the diagnosis of him. So I had seen now two generations of this family just by chance. And that made it especially interesting and personal to me and years years later we followed this family and years later i saw the sons of that man so i saw the grandchildren the grandsons of the original patient i had seen as a resident so i saw three generations of this family and it really brought and they had juvenile huntington's disease and this really brought home to me what this disease was all about how it affected individuals, the kinds of symptoms they had, and how it was seen over and over again in families because it's a dominant disease and each child is at 50% risk. Right. It was almost, it was almost for me, it was almost like recapitulating the experience of uh, George Huntington when he first discovered the disease because he had followed his father and grandfather around on their rounds and had seen families with this disease. And then when he began to practice, he was seeing the children and the grandchildren of those families. So he was he had had that same kind of experience. So I became extremely interested in Huntington's disease and I, and I felt that it was uh, important for three major reasons. The first was that it is uh, fascinating. It's, it's, it's unlike any other uh, neurologic disease. The way it affects people is different in almost every patient, and it can be unexpected. You never know what kinds of symptoms and problems an individual is going to have. Is it going to be the behavioral problems? Is it going to be the cognitive problems? Is it going to be the motor problems? Absolutely. It can, it can come on at any age. So it's a fascinating disease, uh, and. Uh, it's an important disease, although it's said to be rare. I don't really like labeling as rare because it's not all that r- not all that rare. In my career, wow, which is, which has is now spanned uh, 50 years, uh, I've seen more than a thousand people with this disease. Uh, so I don't call it rare. I call it uncommon. It's not as common as, say, Parkinson's disease or or uh, Alzheimer's disease. But it's not rare either. There are lots and lots of patients with it. So I, I just I just say it's it's an uncommon but not rare genetic disease of the brain.
3: I, I I don't mean to interrupt you, but that is something I'll be quite frank with you. When our community listens to this, and they're listening to it now, you happen to be um, I, the first American doctor in my ten years of advocacy and having Huntington's that has ever openly stated that it's not rare. I have been saying for a very long time that we're not rare, we're rarely known. So I want to thank you, Dr. Bird, for saying that openly because the thing that frustrates so many caregivers and patients is that we constantly hear the terminology rare disease but we understand i just wanted to interject there i apologize but thank you so much for for saying that
1: well you're right and it's, it's an important point because uh it's it's classified frequently as a rare disease and and when doctors are trained in medical school they're generally told it's a rare disease uh, and so they don't pay much attention to it they don't expect to see it and then they're quite surprised when a family uh, turns up in their in their practice, uh, but it, there, it's it's all over uh, there there's 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 not a city in our state of Washington, for example, that doesn't have a family with Huntington's disease. So it's just it's just not all that rare. Yes. Uh
4: it's very true, Dr. Berg. We have vastly underestimated the frequency. The Britons had to double their numbers. we Germans were a bit luckier we are only about twenty five to about percent off. so it's much more frequent the latest data from genetic research they tell us that it's even more frequent than we think, probably at least 10 times more frequent in all these uh, cases that we were taught as senile Korea, 80% of them were HD with late onset. So you are a very important point there. That is a frequent uh, disease, not a rare disease.
1: Right. And you make an important point, Dr. Lang, and that is that the genetic testing has changed Uh, our view of this disease, uh, and it's changed it in several ways. One is it's changed our recognition of uh, what ages this disease can be seen. And as you point out, it's particularly changed our view of of older people. Uh, Definitely. uh, And uh, it it definitely can have its onset in older age, and that wasn't recognized. And because of that, as you have said, uh, it's now... Uh, more frequently seen because the testing gets done and what used to be called bizarre behavior or antisocial behavior or uh, movements that couldn't be uh, better understood or senile chorea or a little dystonia Mm -hmm. the testing gets done and it turns out to be Huntington's disease so it's added to the list of people who actually have the disease The other thing that's happening in the United States, I'd be interested to know if this is happening in Germany, is that because that diagnosis is being made, it's more apt to be added to a death certificate when someone dies. And a lot of epidemiologic studies on the frequency and prevalence of diseases in our country is based on death certificates. If a disease shows up on a death certificate, it counts as you're having the had that disease in the community. And I think Huntington's is showing up now more often on death certificates, and that's going to change the numbers as well. Does, does that happen in Germany?
4: Well, uh, it has changed since the advent of the genetic testing, yes, definitely,
3: yeah. May I interject again? uh, The one thing I love about the We Have A Voice show is that we go on so many tangents, and so many of them are so important. Now, I, I cannot stress to either one of you how important what you just said is. We speak weekly on our virtual support groups with patients and caregivers, And we've been telling um, our caregivers, the loved ones, how dire and how important it is to make sure when, God forbid, your loved one passes away, to make sure, because you can state that it was due to Huntington's, they can put whatever else they wish. So, for an example, when my father passed away and my brother passed away, oh, you bet your bottom dollar I made sure that they made it clear that it was due to Huntington's and et cetera, et cetera. This is something that we've been speaking about in our private groups, and now we are having two of the greatest doctors discuss this topic. So it's so important to bring this up within your family. I apologize once again for that interruption, but you're hitting on points that truly need to be discussed.
1: And I can tell you from what you've just said, for example, if someone with Huntington's dies of a heart attack or they die of cancer or they die of pneumonia, that cause of death, heart attack, cancer or pneumonia is what gets put on the death certificate, but there is always space on the death death certificate for other associated or relevant diseases and that's where you can put in Huntington's even if they died the actual cause of death was something else. So that can Which, always be added to the certificate.
3: Which is basically what happens, because my father struggled with Huntington's and five different cancers. So, uh, you know, when we talk about the death itself, um, correct me if I'm wrong, 99.9% will be based on heart failure. It will be based on pneumonia. It will be based on something that, let's face it, um, one of the reasons why so many have not been reported is due to the fact that it doesn't specifically say Huntington's on there. We need to be more diligent as patients and caregivers to make sure that it's not just, oh, we need to put it on the death certificate, but it's correlated in that way so that it's, I hate to say this, but it's also about the statistics that we need to show.
1: Right. Uh, So, James, let me now, let me mention two things to sort of uh, bring us up to date. First thing I'd like to mention is that when I realized that this was not a rare disease and that I was seeing hundreds and hundreds of patients with it and they were so fascinating, I noticed that there really wasn't a book for the general public about this disease and that most persons in the general public were not familiar with it. And because it was so important, so interesting, uh, I decided to write such a book. Uh, Beautiful idea. I, and a wonderful did, book. I did. It. it was published last year. If I could, if I may put in a little plug, uh, the please title, do, please the do. Title of the book is "Can You Help Me," and it's published by Oxford University Press. And it's available through Amazon. It's available through Kindle. Uh, it, it's easy to order and get a hold of. And I it, it's for the general public, but I think it's also helpful to families with Huntington's because it shows. The bigger world of Huntington's disease. And people often in their families don't realize the amazing manifestations.
0: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash podcast. That's indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
1: And variety that this disease can, uh, can cause. And so I think it's helpful for families as well. Yes, fabulous, and fabulous.
4: definitely is a very important uh, guide for those working in the center of excellence because uh, what you wrote there, it covers the full spectrum from juveniles with behavioral to uh, late onset to, to the problems with the law and uh, finding them in jail and getting them out. That is so important that all centers know about these issues and you will describe them so loudly and so uh, strikingly that everybody can understand what's actually disease is all about.
1: And Dr. Lang, I think uh, it's really nice to hear from you because one of the points is that it doesn't matter where you are in the world, this disease is this disease. And if you're in Germany or if you're in the UK or if you're in France or if you're in Japan or China, It doesn't make any difference. Huntington's expresses itself very similarly, no matter where you are. Would you agree with that? Yes,
4: yes. And uh, I love one uh, term you used, that is a cannery in the mind, because societies can be judged how well they uh, take care of Huntington's disease. We did awful in the Third Reich. Uh, They were killed like Jews, like political opponents, they were sent to uh, death uh, hospitals, awful. And uh, things are pretty uh, down the uh, standards still. So many doctors told families not to procreate and stuff like that. And why send them to rehab? It's getting worse anyway. So this uh, society aspect, and you pointed that, to that very differently and very strikingly. And I love that book because you mentioned these issues as well.
1: Yes, people, our societies, when people are acting different, when they seem to be outliers, uh, and they, it's obvious there's something, uh, quote, wrong with them, our society tends to shunt them aside and ignore them. Uh, and they're not recognized as having a, a disease of the brain that they can't help. It's not their fault. Uh, and they need assistance, and they need support, and they need resources. And societies tend to ignore and push aside people like that. And they don't get good care. They don't get resources. They're uh, they're they're left out of the community picture. And uh, it's and it's not just. Huntington's disease it's people with all kinds of brain diseases particularly psychiatric ones schizophrenia manic depressive illness bipolar disease uh, that kind of thing Uh, and right I say that Huntington's is sort of the canary in the mine Uh, Mm -hmm. it's telling us that there's this very important population that needs to be recognized and needs more resources and more care absolutely absolutely uh, and so, one of the ways we have done that is uh, as my career was unfolding, the Huntington's Disease Society of America, the HDSA, had this uh, brilliant idea to uh, uh, resource centers around the country that specialized in Huntington's disease. And so, this is the HDSA Centers of Excellence program. They have uh, Uh, basically clinical uh, expertise areas all over the country that are staffed by neurologists and psychiatrists and social workers and nurses and physical therapists uh, who understand the disease are familiar with the disease and can bring to bear the best expertise and the best resources for the disease and at the University of Washington, we applied for such a center about twenty years ago and were funded and have had it ever since. I was the director of that of our center for many years and have now turned it over to my colleague Dr. Jayadef, who is doing a wonderful job. And and the HDSA has gone from uh, something like ten or twelve centers in the early days to now having fifty Huntington's disease centers of excellence spread throughout the country. So most individuals and families are not too far from a Huntington center of excellence. And that's where you can find uh, medical professionals who know about the disease. And that's very important because it's not unusual for general physicians, even neurologists, to not have seen many patients with it and not be very familiar with it. So, uh, I really want to put in a plug for the HDSA Centers of Excellence because that's where families can get the best information and the best care for this extraordinary disease. Absolutely. And will make a
4: difference, a huge difference for families and the patient because you, you have, uh, in your book you describe families that cope well. And they have a real quality of life that is extraordinary, that has happened to you not just once, and not happened to me just once, but these were the families that taught me that we can influence the way the cookie crumbles in Huntington's disease.
1: Yes, right, exactly.
3: Now, I, I, I totally agree that the centers of excellence are paramount when it comes to Huntington's disease. And, you know, yes, I agree with you that for many people, their center of, center of excellence isn't so far. But for some, it is. It's upwards of a two- to three-hour drive. Um, but but nonetheless, if you could give an overview of how does a facility become a center of excellence?
1: So you, you need uh, to have some uh, physicians and uh, medical care workers in a hospital, clinic, facility, who have a special interest in Huntington's disease and realize that their community uh, has underrepresentation of care for people with the disease. Uh, and then that group of healthcare providers can apply to the HDSA to become a center of excellence. And there are several different sizes or grades, if you will, of centers uh, in terms of their size. So there are relatively small centers, there are medium-sized centers, and there are very large centers. And it mostly depends on their population area. If they're in a sp- sparsely populated area, they may have a relatively small center. But the size is not as important as the personnel. So Correct. no not matter no matter what the size is, if you're, if you're a funded HDSA center of excellence, you have people there who are experts in the disease, understand the disease, and are able to provide the best available advice and resources for that disease, even if they're in a relatively sparse population area. And if, if you live in a community that's far away from a center, You still can have your local physicians collaborate with the center so that your care is local by your local physicians, but they can communicate directly with the center when you're having special problems uh, and get the best advice from experts about what to do at the local level. Uh, And James, you mentioned at the very beginning that this has now been enhanced by telemedicine. So all the centers of excellence now have telemedicine available or it will soon come online. It's interesting that, that that's one of the good news fallouts from this whole COVID-19 business. Uh, Absolutely.
3: We we have so many conversations each day uh, with people saying, "Oh god, I need medication refills. I need this, I need that, not necessarily need to see the center of excellence. Um, in person, but, you know, I need certain services that could indeed be delivered through a telemedicine approach. Louise Vetter responded quickly to me regarding that, and and she is adamant that all of them are either going to, or they are, or they will be rolling it out very soon. So that is a very positive thing.
1: Right, um, and, it, and it's happened, it's actually happened from this, all the social distancing that has become necessary with the COVID-19 hospitals and clinics all over the country suddenly realized that people are not supposed to leave their homes if they can help it uh, mm-hmm. and, so, and so the best way to communicate with them is to uh, use telemedicine so that so hospitals and clinics have been scrambling to bring that online and I think they've been uh, pretty successful
3: right well I have another question and I, I would like for you dr. bird to Answer first and then Dr. Lang, you can follow up. Mm-hmm. From from a patient's point of view and also a caregiver's point of view, for many years now, Korea was indeed the targeted diagnostic criteria for a diagnosis. We used to hear that depression, anxiety, insomnia, and all the other attributes that come with Huntington's were just the softer symptoms of HD. However, I've noticed, and there's been much change over time. Now, in your opinion, Doctor Bird, and then follow up, Doctor Lang, should doctors diagnose Huntington's patients earlier so that a treatment plan can be put in place? I know it's not a black and white question, but to you, to the best of your circumstances, if you can please answer that.
1: Well, in terms of diagnosis. Uh, the, it's, it's very interesting, uh, the approach to genetic diseases nowadays. There really are two kinds of diagnoses in these genetic diseases. Uh, and one is the diagnosis, do I carry the mutation in DNA that co- that eventually causes this disease? So that's the diagnosis of your DNA genetic test, whether or not you have inherited the uh The mutation that causes the disease but that doesn't mean you have clinical disease it just means you've inherited the mutation the other kind of diagnosis is diagnosing people who have actual symptoms of the disease and are beginning to manifest symptoms of the disease and I think that diagnosis should be done whenever people have symptoms Uh, and That leads to the discussion of what exactly are symptoms. And in my book, I say from my experience that uh, about about a third of people, the earliest symptom they have is what's called a motor symptom. They have chorea or they have dystonia or they have some kind of physical disability that is the first manifestation of Huntington's disease. I agree. Another third of people have a behavior, mental problem, personality problem. That's the earliest manifestation. They don't have any movement or motor problem at all. It begins as a personality change, a behavior change, a cognitive change. And that's the first symptom of the disease. And that can happen years before the motor problem. And then another third, it seems like both things happen about at the same time. They come into the clinic and they've had a behavioral change. And when you look at them, you see they also have some chorea. So both things have happened at about the same time. I completely agree.
4: Couldn't be more accurate as you have said, Dr. Bird. This is probably one third, one third, one third.
3: Based on the fact that as a patient and a, a previous caregiver, We literally are in the trenches within multiple Facebook groups and and other various social media outlets and Back I would say a few years ago We would hear from so many caregivers. They just will not diagnose without physical onset of Korea, but the patient is depressed anxious, can't work. They cannot be in, in, a, in a room with people for long periods of time. The employer is not making uh, the adjustments that he or she may need to continue to work, or that patient uh, is hasn't worked because they, they got fired, or whatever the case may be, but they're just not showing what we would consider is the bar to be met by whether it be doctors at centers of excellence or our own primary care physicians, because let's face it, there are many who have been diagnosed by their primary care physician. So when we talk about what manifests, can we discuss more about what you consider the um, behavior? Because the underlining is so much more this is depression the anxiety the insomnia promiscuity drug abuse alcohol abuse that let's face it a diagnosis does not happen they're not able to get the medical that they need to be proactive and, and move on in their life because majority of the people that we speak to say we're not worried about the korea we're worried about everything else
1: right so you have to take each case individually each one is different. They're not all the same. The most, In terms of the non-motor symptoms, I think the most useful is a behavior change, a personality change. If the family, the spouse or other family members say something's happened that's different in our loved one, Their personality, their behavior is not what it used to be. They used to be a calm, collected, friendly person, and now they're uh, cranky, they're unpredictable, they lose their temper more easily, uh, and they're doing things that they never would have done before. That's the best kind of behavior change that's highly indicative of developing the disease. As you mentioned, other things can happen, but they're less specific. An important one is depression. So depression can certainly go hand in hand with Huntington's before the diagnosis is ever made. But depression is not rare in the general community. And it's not rare in Huntington's families. And it's not rare in people in Huntington's families who do not have the disease (laughs) because uh, their their family situation can be very uh, uh, distressed. And they can be depressed because of Huntington's in their family, even though they have not inherited it. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a one-to-one sign of the disease. But that's why such people need to be seen by experts who have uh, knowledge of the disease and can sort out all these different cognitive and behavior changes to help the family decide whether or not they should pursue uh, genetic testing and whether or not they're also showing other signs of the disease, but it needs to be taken on an individual basis. Every, every person is different.
3: Absolutely. I totally agree. And that's, uh, that's basically what we've been saying. It's not a one-size-fits-all disease. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that today's show is going to let the population understand more about it. Um, this is an open and honest conversation that, in truth, should have happened many, many years ago. Um, but I do also believe that we need to have change over time. It's just that but there's not so the, many.
4: the way we need it, James. The yeah. societies they uh, now have a presymptomatic phase. That's fine if you don't have any uh, symptom, neither motor nor behavior, or cognitive or whatever then you are pre-symptomatic. That's okay. You have the mutation, but your brain is working 100%. But then they called a phase before motor onset prodromal. This is leading in the wrong direction. These patients are not prodromal. They are non-motor or pre-motor, whatever you would like, but they are not prodromal. They are in the non-motor phase, as I would suggest that that phase of HD is
3: termed. I mean, I totally agree, and I think where my point was leading was we're not literally talking about the individuals who are still able to work, they're still able to function, they're still able to maintain uh, a livelihood that is the quote-unquote norm, but then we have so many patients who, in America, because I cannot speak for any other country, but specifically in America – the problem that many caregivers and patients face is that they they want that diagnosis not because of anything other than that patient has had a major change and they don't have uh, uh, the ability to work and on top of that they need medical benefits to help them so in america that's the trifecta we're not talking about patient a who can continue to work They know that they're at risk or they may have gotten the test and was uh, told that, yes, you you were a carrier for it. But we're talking about those people who do venture out to uh, the subset of doctors and say, listen, I I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do that. I, I need this diagnosis so that I can get on a medication protocol and also have the medical benefits that I need. So that's kind of where my. Uh, perspective was going, speaking on behalf of quite a few people within the community who are struggling at the time with this.
1: And I agree. And and those kinds of people, at least initially, need to be seen by someone who has uh, a depth of knowledge about Huntington's disease, an expert who is familiar with the disease, is familiar with these cognitive and behavioral changes and is willing to take that into consideration Absolutely, and, and knows how to put the story together and do what's best for the patient. That's not always easy. Uh, you know, a, a big deal is if, if you're having early signs of the disease, do you, or do you not tell your employer, do you, or do you not apply for uh, social security benefits? Do you, or do you not tell your uh, friends and neighbors and other family members. These are, these are difficult decisions to make uh, because once the diagnosis is out in public, you may be treated differently. Mm-hmm. And on, on the one hand, you may be treated better. And on the other hand, you may be discriminated against. Oh, so
3: guaranteed. To, Absolutely.
1: You, you have to be quite cautious about, uh, about yes. those kinds of decisions. And you need to work that out together with your family members and with the healthcare providers who so are not about the disease.
4: Very, very true.
2: It's time for a short break. Thank you for listening to We Have a Voice Radio.
3: That's chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
3: I'd like to ask you, Dr. Ling, first about environmental factors. Now, Dr. Ling, you and I have been talking about this for a very long yes. time. Now, although many of us already understand this because we've been advocating for it across social media, but can you please tell the listeners how environmental factors can indeed help the Huntington's patient regarding symptoms?
4: Yeah, I was lucky that I was brought to that conclusion very early on in my career in the early 1980s. I was seeing twins, monozygotic twins that were genetically identical. And the young, the one I saw first, he had problems from age 16 on, behavioral issues, lost his driver's life, lost his job. He was in trouble. And when I first admitted him to my psychiatric hospital, I got a call next day from a marine physician, he said, I have a marine, he is kind of strange on when he walks on the ship, and I said, I suppose he has hunting's disease, what do you think? He said, wow, how do you know? I said, I have his twin brother here, so... He, the, uh, the other twin, he was uh, living a normal life, had a good relation, he uh, went to university, he tried to finish his study of architecture. By the end of that study, he felt problems in uh, fine uh, motor behavior and in the cognitive uh, charge of the study. So he quit and went back to the army to serve uh, in the Marine. And later in my career, I saw twin brother, uh, brothers, not twins, but they were nine years apart in age, and they have the same CRG now. And what happened? The elder, uh, they both lost their uh, uh, mother uh, that was carrying the gene. Of course, she showed uh, signs to cancer. And it happened that uh, the father remarried, and that was a stepmother in the worst sense. So the older of the new had to endure that uh, struggle uh, for life only for two years. Then he left the family and the other had to stick his head into that for nine more years. He suffered a fatal blow there for his uh, resilience. And later on, he uh, chose a job where you only get stress in the IT business. You only get calls from people that are discontent the machine is running, uh, not running, the uh, computer program is not running, how come you haven't fixed it yesterday? Never uh, get a call that, oh, the machinery is running for two weeks now, thank you for that. That doesn't happen, so he is always in stress, he must uh, uh, do things uh, on a very strict uh, timescale, and the other one is still working, flying a small plane, enjoying life, so that taught me again that, Life circumstances are vital and we are imprinted in the childhood how resilient we are in life and stressing aging. So the younger one, he was hit by the disease uh, now 15 years ago. And so we have almost 25 years difference in age of onset in these two. The elder one probably will never show motor symptoms or cognitive symptoms
1: at all.
3: Wow. Yeah, that is definitely food for thought. And, and your take on it, Dr. Bird?
1: So, yeah, we get asked this question a lot uh, about what, what in the environment could be influencing the disease. It's, it's, it's very difficult to uh, pick and choose and sort that out, obviously. <clears throat> a couple of things that we've definitely noticed that I think impact the disease in a negative way, uh, and one is alcohol uh, and the other is drugs. We have people who have uh, been alcoholics uh, and I believe they have more problems with their Huntington's and tend to have earlier onset. We have people who have been drug addicts uh, on a number of different kinds of opioids. They appear to have more trouble with their Huntington's and earlier onset. So I think those two things in the environment very negatively influence the disease. And then I think, as Dr. Lang was pointing out, if you're raised in a dysfunctional family or social environment, uh, that impacts you negatively as well. I mean, it would impact anybody who's raised in a dysfunctional environment, but I think it's particularly uh, a negative influence on people with Huntington. So, those are the things in the environment uh, that I've seen that I think really make. A difference. Other things, you know, for people talk a lot about diet. I think I think you need to have a healthy diet, uh, but I don't think there's any one specific thing in the diet that makes a difference, positive or negative, other than alcohol. Uh, so have a healthy diet, but you know, vitamin supplements and and uh, organic versus not, and so forth. There's no there's no evidence that that really makes a difference
3: now moving on to another person who is an amazing human being i love her to death dr jan dolta of uc davis california she's an outstanding scientist and a dear friend of all of us in the huntingtons and juvenile huntingtons community and she is literally in the trenches with us since i've met her now she taught us something a few years ago and it was amazing bdnf brain derived neurotrophic factors now, for our listeners who are not familiar with what BDNF is, what I'd like for each of you uh, to do is talk about that and tell us how BDNF can provide advantages for patients.
1: So, as you said, it's a trophic factor, uh, and it it uh, influences growth of nerve cells. Uh, and it was discovered many years ago, uh, and it's being Uh, used experimentally to see how it may or may not benefit specifically people with Huntington's disease. So it's part of the larger uh, enterprise that's going on to study possible treatments of this disease. And there are a lot in the pipeline. That's one of them. Uh, It's going to take time uh, and careful analysis before we know what makes a difference. But because there are a lot of treatment trials now in the pipeline, I think in the next uh, two to three years, we're going to know a lot more about potential treatments for this disease and BDF is one of many.
4: Yes, uh, and we know from uh, experiments and from stress research that uh, a well-functioning brain sends uh, from the cortex to the basal ganglia BDNF to keep those nerve cells well in function and uh, to see that they have got good uh, function and repair mechanism so that they can do their job for uh, the whole lifetime. And this is something where the environment comes in when you have your brain in the perfect mode, that you are relaxed, not stressed, and feeling happy, then the BDNF level will be optimal and the activity in the basal ganglia will survive much longer than when you live under constant stress and have a BDNF deficiency, because you are either overstressed or not really working hard enough. So, under stress is not helpful either. So in the middle of the road for exercising or uh, living your life. That is the optimum for every uh, brain. And especially if it's vulnerable, like in Huntington's disease, because the metabolism is not as stable as it used to
3: be. Well, what we've been doing um, across all of our groups for a few years now, and as of late, even more, because of us being... Um, in our homes more due to COVID-19 is regardless of the disease, if you're happier, if you laugh, if you smile, if you're doing something positive, you're exercising, if you're swimming, if you're walking, walking around your house, wherever, doing anything that brings upon positivity is obviously going to be beneficial. So we have always... Um, harnessed and been a proponent of BDNF because majority of our patients and caregivers, and both of you know, it's a stressful life as it is. And then when you compound that with what we're going through with COVID-19, it makes it even more stressful. So we've been, you know, monitoring patients and talking to them, try to be active, get in the sun for a little bit, do some puzzles, draw, color, listen to music, dance. Pick pick something that's going to make you feel better and positive. You know, obviously, with a healthy diet, with supplements and things of that nature, what can it hurt? It could only help. So we've been seeing so many patients go from a depression into now we're supporting more, we're working together more, we're having more video chats and and people are feeling better, they're doing better, you know. So that's why I wanted to bring up the BDNF factor.
1: So, Joe James, I have a chapter in my book on that exact topic. The, mm-hmm. title, the title of the chapter is Enjoy the Moment. Uh, Every, and, absolutely. And I, I discuss in there a patient with Huntington's who took up dancing
2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Boyd, were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: I discuss a patient with Huntington's who took up bowling. I discuss a patient with Huntington's who loved to play uh, softball. Uh, and so that's the exact point that you're making is yes. just because you have the diagnosis of this disease... Doesn't mean that you can't do uh, enjoyable things, and people That's a should. message
4: in your book that uh, you can do a lot, and you can do the right things that will increase your quality of life instantly, and will give you a better
3: prognosis. Right now, there are Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's patients who are not ambulatory; they are unable to do a lot of what they used to do. And I want to bring up um, Aaron Wade, which is Cindy Moore's. Um, daughter, who has juvenile Huntington's disease. Cindy is the president of We Have a Face Canada. And I have witnessed firsthand by spending quality time up there, whether it was uh, doing a walk um, or filming, that Erin is living a longer and healthier life because her family, especially the caregivers, uh, family members, and uh, number one, um, Cindy, They work inclusivity. Erin is not laying in the bed every day. She's out on the couch. She's watching her horror movies. That's one thing she and I have (laughs) that we both enjoy. And she is with the family all the time. They treat her no differently. And even though she's non-ambulatory, she can still laugh and she can still Have fun and they include her in everything. So, for those who are listening who have a loved one who is in the advanced stages, whether it be JHD or HD, inclusivity matters.
1: Uh, On that point, I have to say, I have a chapter in my book on juvenile Huntington's disease, and people who have read the book have told me that that's one of the most moving chapters in the book. Amen. It's about a little girl who developed signs of the disease when she was about seven or eight years old Uh, and her teacher in elementary school found out about the diagnosis and rather than let the children reject her and ignore her, they brought her into the center of the school community and they, they gathered around her and supported her and talked about her problems and really were very inclusive in her school community. And she loved it. She had a wonderful time. The children got a lot of positive feedback for doing this. Uh, And the, the teacher was really remarkable. And it's an example of how a small community surrounding a person with Huntington's, especially juvenile Huntington's, can make a huge positive difference in their life.
3: Absolutely. And I've seen it firsthand. Absolutely. And it's not always easy. And not everyone is in a circumstance that they can. Um, But there are very small things that can be done to provide uh, beneficial environmental factors and inclusivity. Um, And that's, I mean, that's regardless of the disease itself you know everyone needs to be included regardless of the disability or the disease so that's one of the major points especially what we're experiencing right now being closed off from family friends and activities that we're used to doing that try to do as much as you can in the house i I would assume both of you would agree with me as well
1: yeah absolutely yeah 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 and I have to agree
4: with Dr. about That story of that uh, young uh, uh, girl that was so supported by school uh, kids, wonderful. Just a wonderful story. And that should be uh, mandatory for every uh, center of excellence to read that, what we can do and even with uh, juvenile H D kids. If the diagnosis is there at time and if everybody around them is uh, informed well enough that there's so much to do and that is so effective
3: yeah, and I will definitely put um, your book out on social media because I'm going to get mine today. And um, I, I just want to thank both of you so much for your time. Uh, this has been an incredible show. Um, it means a lot to me, and I know it's going to mean a lot to our patients and caregivers on a global scale. Um, so I, I want to thank you again, Dr. Dr. Bird, for joining us. Um, i I, I want to have you back on the show if you'd be okay with that in the future.
1: It was a it was a great conversation, and I enjoy talking about this topic.
3: Wonderful, and Dr. Lang, thank you for always being there with us as our senior medical advisor. Um, we love you dearly, and your input is always amazing. So thank you for joining us.
4: That has been a pleasure again, and uh, talking with Dr. Bird that f-
3: filled my heart. Absolutely. Well, it is time to wrap up the show today. So if you are listening to the show and you have any questions about your center of excellence, I did a video on Facebook, if you haven't seen it, it shows you exactly how to navigate so you can get to the center of excellence in your area. So you basically go to hdsa.org and navigate to find help, click that, and then click on locate resources in your area, And if you don't have the phone number or the email address to your Center of Excellence, literally, you check the box next to Center of Excellence and then quickly scroll down, type in your zip code. And as soon as you click it, you'll see all the Centers of Excellence that are the nearest to you. And you could reach out to them by phone, by email. So we all need to be proactive, especially during COVID-19. And the great news, like I said again, was that um, Louise confirmed that the Centers of Excellence are there for you. Um, so reach out to them. I know that they are busy, but we have to make sure that we're being proactive. Um, so thanks again for joining me, Dr. Lang and Dr. Bird. And if thank you for the show. I really appreciate it. Now, I want to thank all of you for tuning in today. And please be sure to click follow on our show page and stay connected to receive information about our upcoming shows. And we look forward to broadcasting many more shows in the upcoming weeks. Thanks again. And always remember...
2: 18 plus.